Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. I'm delighted to welcome Chad Evans to the podcast today. Chad is Executive Vice President and Secretary to the Board at the Council on Competitiveness, a prominent nonpartisan voice that provides real-world perspective to policymakers and influences decision-making process across a broad spectrum of issues from science and technology to innovation to energy policy. Chad's responsibilities include shaping and managing the council's 20-person policy team, research portfolio, publication, conferences, and extended stakeholder network. I was delighted to have contributed to a recent report of the council, which is how we first met. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chad. Oh, it's my pleasure, Vaughn, and thank you for all your contributions to the the council's work in our our National Commission on Innovation and Competitiveness Frontiers. We were we were honored. It was an amazing process how you were able to craft that report with so many stakeholders and so many experts uh, on Zoom too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Chad, it would be really helpful to our audience. Um, maybe you can give us a quick orientation on the Council on Competitiveness and what you see as its mission and impact. Sure thing, Bon. That's the easy one. I hope it is. I've worked at the council now for 20 years. The Council on Competitiveness is actually 35 years old, so I wasn't there at its inception. But what makes us distinctive is really the creation of this consensus group of C-suite leadership from industry, academia, the labor movement, as well as our national laboratories, all of whom believe when they join the council that their mission is to drive not only policies and actions to promote long-term productivity growth for the country, but also to promote policies and actions that will drive inclusive prosperity for every American. Our current chairman is Brian Moynihan, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. We have an academic vice chair. uh, That's Joan Gable, the president of the University of Minnesota. Our labor vice chair is Lonnie Stevenson. Lonnie is the international president of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. So our board really helps to shape um, our policy agenda. Of course, they have governance and oversight, but they're really driven to work with myself, my CEO, Deborah Wentz-Smith, and the team to shape our agenda. And for our board, for the past year and a half, and for the next two to three years out, at least as so far as we foresee, our flagship effort and our project is something we call the National Commission on Innovation and Competitiveness Frontiers which has a very specific goal and mission to really drive um, greater innovation capacity and capability for the country. But as you noted in your intro, the council has broader interests. We think innovation is really critical to our long-term growth, but we're also committed to issues around sustainability, resilience, the future of our manufacturing enterprise, the leveraging of our energy abundance for energy strength and independence and how that links to our manufacturing sector the future of advanced computing. So a whole range of issues. And of course, at the core of all of our work are people because people matter. Well, Chad, I'm sure our audience is relieved to hear that there's a a body of such diverse stakeholders coming together to think about these very hard issues and doing so in an inclusive way. So Chad, the National Commission on Innovation and Competitiveness Frontiers recently produced a year one report called Competing in the Next Economy. 
It contains a clear set of strategic recommendations for the nation. Could you share more about the report and its highlights? Sure thing, Vaughn. And maybe it might be helpful. I'll talk a little bit about where did the idea come from for this national commission and then get to your point around some of our year one findings. With the leadership of our board, we launched the national commission the second half of 2019 um, in the firm belief that our long-term growth required placing ever more attention on innovation in order to confer competitive advantage. And this also took place um, with the understanding that while the United States has stood apart from the rest of the world over the past 50 years or more and our record of sustained innovation across industries old and new, through the ups and downs of various economic cycles, the nation today really does face a set of realities and imperatives. Our members also have felt that the nature of innovation itself is changing. You know, it's becoming dramatically more interconnected, turbulent, fast-paced. And I think as you've seen in your world, Vaughn, it's increasingly democratized and involving more and more people. And ultimately, what that means is that there are new research and business models that are emerging. But despite the growth of America's innovation economy, you know, our National Commission was born out of the realization that not every American has been brought onto our nation's innovation team. And, you know, I, I think back on the words of our former vice chair for academia, Michael Crow the president of Arizona State University, because he's put it better. He imagines the United States as a 300 million person football team. And if you look at that 300 million person football team, 100 million of those people, no matter what metric you look at, are succeeding. Life expectancy, educational attainment, wealth creation and growth. Um, they're doing really well in this innovation-based economy. Look at the middle 100 million though. If you look at those same metrics, those 100 million people are probably stagnant, not really improving, maybe not worsening, but definitely um, flat. But look at the third 100 million. Again, across almost every metric that we've looked at before that I mentioned, those 100 million people are doing worse today than they have been in the past several decades. So in essence, we've got 200 million Americans who are not benefiting from what we think of as the most important engine growth in our economy. And so that's really, in the face of that reality, we created the National Commission amongst our members, really as a, a leadership movement to face those challenges at home and abroad, to plan for our long-term success, and ultimately, to your point, Vaughn, to recommend concrete actions to put in place the talent, the capital, the infrastructure that we know are going to be necessary to increase our innovation capacity for the future. And I'd be happy to talk about some of the, the key recommendations, if you'd like. I think our audience would love to hear some of these recommendations now that you've uh, piqued our interest that it pertains to 200 million Americans. Well, you know, when we look at that number of 200 million, and of course we want 300 million Americans, we want everyone to be doing better. But when we look at it, particularly the 200 million who are not benefiting, we knew that we would have to be very bold with our report. It is a call for a 10x improvement in our innovation capacity and capability. Now, why 10x? Maybe one can argue over the number, but just by coincidence, as I was preparing for our conversation, Vaughn, I saw something really interesting that came out just this week from Peter Diamandis at Singularity, quoting his friend Astro Teller, the captain of moonshots at Alphabet, who said that when you shoot for a 10x, a 1,000% improvement, and you're trying to do something radically hard, very different, 
you know, you're already beginning to change your mindset and approach a problem in a completely different way to deliver a competitive advantage. So that's our mantra. Um, and it falls under four thematic arcs. First, we're looking for, in our report, a 10x improvement in leadership and national strategies for innovation. Our second pillar, we're looking for a 10x improvement in how we increase the number of innovations that are developed in and deployed by the United States. Our third thematic arc, we're looking for a 10x improvement in how we increase the speed at which the United States innovates. And finally, our fourth, and I think most important um, arc, is we're looking for a 10x improvement and how we increase both the number and the diversity of Americans who are engaged in innovation. So those are the four big pillars of competing in the next economy. And I, I could give you maybe a couple of examples of maybe some of the concrete work. And, and you'll know some of these, Vaughn, because you contributed and helped to develop some of these recommendations. So if we looked at the first arc, you know, 10x, leadership and national strategies for innovation, you know, we call for the establishment of a White House National Competitiveness and Innovation Council. We even call for parallel state versions of those councils. And why did we call for that? Because we really wanted to create in this country a national vision for U.S. competitiveness and innovation. And we wanted to have a more integrated policy development across our federal departments and agencies. Now, have we achieved that yet? No. But we take it as a very good sign that one of the first things President Biden did when he came into office was to elevate his science advisor to the cabinet. That was a strong signal to the market, the policymakers, and those who are interested in the innovation economy, that the new administration would be thinking differently about why science, technology, research and development, and ultimately innovation matters for the country. So are we exactly where we want to be? No, but we think we're making good progress and we continue our work with the administration, the Hill, governors, and others in this space. I, I can stop there, Vaughn, but I'm happy to talk about some of the other key recommendations and some of and the other pillars, if you'd like. Our listeners would love some more details on each one of those recommendations. So, Vaughn, you know, we also had a recommendation in that first arc around uh, leadership and national strategies, this idea that we needed to build better a whole-of-nation strategy to develop and deploy, in particular, some critical dual-use technologies that our members and our community felt would shape the industries of the future, that would shape our national security, that would also help us to respond to a series of global grand challenges. So those technologies think of advanced microelectronics and semiconductors, advanced computing, which I include in their supercomputing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, but also think of biotechnology, the future of climate change and renewables. So, you know, these are areas where our members have specifically called on policy leaders to make significant investments. And on that score, I think we have very good news to report. You know, both the White House as well as the Senate, and we believe also on the Hill, there's significant legislation that, well, actually several pieces of legislation that have been proposed in a bipartisan manner just in the past five to six months to address some of those critical technology issues. So we've seen quick uptake on this recommendation, which heartens us, um, but we also know we need to do more and we're not gonna rest on our laurels. I'd also like to talk about maybe the second major arc of recommendations around increasing the number of innovations that we actually develop in and deploy here in the United States. I, I think perhaps one of our most provocative recommendations in that space was the call for 
the establishment of a new nonprofit American Innovation Investment Fund that would have an initial public-private capitalization of around $100 billion. Why did our members think that this was important? Well, when you look at the United States and compare ourselves not only against strategic allies, but also strategic competitors, you know, we don't have a domestic investment vehicle solely devoted towards these critical technologies that I just mentioned, much less emerging technologies that we don't even know about yet. So while it is a big number, $100 billion, we actually think that's probably conservative. And so we're engaged in conversations with leaders on the Hill. There's actually been a significant interest both on the Republican and the Democratic side on, on something like this. So, you know, that's another um, what we think was a, a compelling recommendation. I'll point to another recommendation. This is really in our the tranche three on how we increase the speed at which we innovate. You know, one of the key findings uh, in our work, and but this has been echoed by many other initiatives and efforts around the country, is that we need to establish a U.S. digital infrastructure access and inclusion initiative. You know, access to broadband is increasingly table stakes to be able to engage in today's economy. And we know in the United States today, there are many parts of our country um, that don't have access to broadband. So they're not able to engage. It's not just about working. It's also about learning. It's about building skills. And if we don't have everyone open and engaged and included in this broadband-based future, we're not going to be innovative. And then finally, in our fourth tranche around how do we increase the number and diversity of Americans who are engaged in innovation, we have many recommendations in that space. But, but I'll bring out one that sort of struck me as compelling. We have called for the redesign of federal economic development programs to support innovation building capacity. We've asked for the elimination of outdated grant criteria, as well as duplicative funding. Why did our members think that this was important? So Vaughn, I'm going to ask you a question, see if you can guess uh, the answer. Um, which city or metro statistical area do you think received for many, many years the most significant investments in economic development funds in this country? Los Angeles. Good guess. But you know what? It wasn't. It was Greenwich, Connecticut. What? Perhaps today, one of the richest cities and counties in the country. So, so why was Greenwich, Connecticut the recipient of all of these funds? Because the metrics that were used to deliver those funds were based on the age of housing stock. So the metrics were just wrong. And therefore, they were driving perverse outcomes. Greenwich, Connecticut didn't need those funds. Well, maybe they needed some. But we know Baton Rouge needed them. We know Detroit needed them. We know Los Angeles needed them. So we're calling for a relook at a lot of programs that, frankly, are just not attuned to our innovation age. So I'll stop there for a moment, Vaughn, to get your reaction. But those are just a sampling of, again, I said 50 what we think are compelling recommendations that we're, we're looking for activation and engagement with the White House, both parties on the Hill, and as well as our governors, our mayors, and state legislators. Well, this report is clearly a treasure trove of good practical ideas. So thank you, Chad, for sharing a number of those highlights with us. You mentioned in, in one of the recommendations the, the concept of countries that are allies and competitors. One of those countries is China. And before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion around AI, for example. How are we thinking about AI, how it changes the workflow and therefore changing skill sets? Were there some insights that came out of this report? And are there recommendations in terms of how we can position against China, given the 
sort of the volume of data that they can collect more easily than in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely, Vaughn. This was actually a, a really big topic because I think on the one hand, there are those who are obviously very excited about and see the opportunity space around the development and deployment of artificial intelligence and, and some of the perhaps competitive advantage that might give companies or other organizations. And on the other hand, we have folks around the country who are worried about artificial intelligence as a job replacer, as a technology that might cut back on the workforce in the United States. I, I think what we found in our work was that, in fact, artificial intelligence will be a tool that has the ability, perhaps, to improve the productivity potential of the American worker. One of the reasons the United States prospered and really turned a corner in the late 80s and early 90s was the fact that U.S. industry, but also workers, universities, and other organizations quickly adopted and deployed technologies around the internet. You know, those technologies actually became productivity enhancers and opened up a wave of new industry creation, new company formation, new job creation. I think um, most of our members would contend, although it's not assured, so we have to think about this strategically and thoughtfully, AI deployed correctly can be another productivity enhancer. Now, I think to your other point, what it's going to require is for leaders to really think about the ethics and the frameworks in which AI are developed and deployed. And I'll also mention a dialogue we hosted just about two weeks ago. We had the senior editor from The Economist, Kim Kukier, who's just written a book called Framers. And Ken and his co-author, Victor Meyer Schoenberg from Oxford University, spoke to our CTOs about a concept that they have around why AI will not be um, a displacement of the human mind or the human worker, that in fact, um, what AI is, is as you mentioned, is a compilation of data. But AI does not have the ability to imagine and to frame contextual um, arguments and to really, in some senses, they would argue, frame the world and the way in which we live in a pluralistic society and think uh, about what our lives should look like and be like. So they're much more of the mindset, and I think a lot of our CTOs resonated with this, that AI can be a positive tool, but ultimately the human mind will prevail and the opportunity is there. Now, that does require, though, we have to change the way we think about education, skilling, reskilling, and continually learning um, in our economy. And it won't just be degrees. Um, we will have to have certifications, stackable um, education, stackable skill sets are going to be increasingly important. So I, I guess the, the mantra from the commission is we can't rest on our laurels. We shouldn't be afraid of AI. But we also need to be preparing the American worker to thrive in a world that is going to be driven in large part by these technological revolutions. So let's take advantage of the moment, Chad. And if you were to make your ask of the educators that are listening, what would you ask of them to ready for the future of higher education? Well, I think the biggest ask I would make would be that the American education system writ large, this could be whether it's higher ed or even further down, think in a more and act in a more multidisciplinary or boundary breaking way. Because I think what we have learned in competing in the next economy um, and what we have learned from our members and those who are not, not me, but those who are actually out there in the workforce engaged in, in innovating and making change is that that change is going to come from 
the unexpected osmosis between disciplines, domains, jobs. So if we're educating in a silo and educating people to be unprepared to cross boundaries, to collaborate, to team, we are setting ourselves up for failure. So that would be the, the mega ask. And I guess supporting that would be, therefore, leverage technology, leverage the ability to engage through our computer, not even in person, but to use all sorts of tools to um, accelerate and to empower the American learner, whether they're five years old, 50 years old, or 75 years old, or even older. What do you think of the moment right now where employers are continuing to have trouble finding skilled workers or just workers, period? That is a, that's going to be a challenge, but we're beginning to note a little bit of a change. You know, when we looked at some of the past data around why companies can't find workers that they need. If you actually looked at things like job ads, job descriptions, you know, it's a miracle they could find anyone to fill these jobs. In some sense, um, employers were becoming so hyper-specialized that there was no single worker that could possibly meet their need. I think we're seeing employers stepping back a little bit, trying to be a bit more uh, open and broad about the skill sets they really truly need not trying to be overly um, prescriptive. And I think successful um, employers are those who are telling the marketplace and telling potential workers, listen, we want to engage with you. We want to bring you in and we're going to learn together and we're going to provide you the tools to upskill and, and to grow quickly. And I think that's going to be um, the employer that is that magnetizes the best and brightest as opposed to you know, an employee looking on a job site and just immediately thinking, well, I can't possibly work there. I don't have eight of the 15 qualities that they're looking for. So I think the pendulum perhaps swung a little too far to, to one side and is coming back and we hopefully we'll see a rebalancing there. You know, but I also saw some data out this week that people remain reticent to come back to the workforce for a variety of reasons. And people, while I think we can knock on wood that vaccinations are going fairly well in the United States, there remains a, a, a small but significant minority of Americans who are fearful of coming back to the workforce. There are another percentage of Americans who took this past year, and I don't think this is actually just in the United States, I think this is across the world, but took this past year and maybe took stock of their lives, what they were doing and where they might want to be headed, and are not moving as quickly back into the workforce as we might have expected. You know, I think that employers will continue to face some challenges in the short to medium term in that respect, but I'm confident that the U.S. market seems to respond and rally well, and I, I'm confident we'll, we'll have a return to some of the employment that we've seen in the past, but it will likely look very different. I agree with you, especially on your former point about the labor market and how it recalibrates, especially in a moment when the labor market, you know, the, the competition for talent is tight. We'll see employers beginning to screen in rather than screening out. Exactly. So much better about it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and it's not just employers. It's also higher education. We're going to also face the same sort of enrollment challenge. Yeah. You know, this pandemic has chased quite a bit of people away from higher education. And so now how do we screen in people instead of screen out people from higher education? Ron, I couldn't agree more, especially on the higher education point. I mean, I think even before the pandemic, and you know this better than me, the higher education community was facing a lot of pressure around pricing. You know, it's really expensive in the United States to get an education. And what's the return? Now, I personally believe there is a, 
a good return. And, and I think you see that for many Americans, but not for all. And so I do think higher education has, I don't know if I would call it a reckoning, but has will be facing a moment, as you just described, how could they become more inclusive, more engaged? And you know, some of the models that we've looked at in the National Commission, you know, schools like Arizona State are explicitly using what you described as the, let's screen them in. <laughs> it's about inclusivity. It's not about exclusivity. That's not a winning proposition, especially for a country as large and diverse as the United States. Um, and that ties back to the earlier point. We don't have the luxury of blocking two-thirds of our population from our economy. There's no way that a, an aging society can ever win with that strategy. Well, it seems like there's been fairly positive reception to a number of the recommendation from policymakers to this report. Do you have any final observations that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, thank you for that note. We, we do think there's been positive um, receptivity. There's a lot more we can do. And I think one of the next steps that we'll be taking in our national commission will happen in just a few weeks. Um, our national commissioners will meet on July 19th um, under the chairmanship of our, of our new leader, Brian Moynihan. And I think Brian will be challenging the council community to think more seriously on a couple of fronts. One, the future of sustainability. And I mean that writ large in a holistic sense. So yes, it's about environmental sustainability, but it's also about the sustainability of our communities, the sustainability of our technology enterprise. So that's one area where I know that we at the council would welcome additional voices, leaders, and folks to help us to move forward. The second area is really what I would say around this all of nation approach to the future of semiconductors. You know, one of the things that we learned in the COVID-19 era is that of the fragility of our supply chains and the, and the ripple effects across our entire economy. And fundamental to that is the semiconductor. And then a third area, this is really in your space, Vaughn, and I would love for your continued leadership and help, it's the future of work. It's the future of the worker. Um, we've only begun to understand, as you've just tried to pull out for me, the implications of what does work really look like now? Yeah, I feel like we're still kind of in the COVID-19 headspace. We're sort of in this limbo moment, hopefully proceeding to a positive end result and really trying to get our economy back on foot. But as we said, I, I don't think it's going to look the same for the American worker or the employer. So what's the new contract between the American worker and the employer? And how does everyone benefit for a more inclusive, robust society? Well, Chad, I'm looking forward to having ongoing conversations with you, especially on the, the future of the workers. I have definitely observed that we lack the human infrastructure to pace with the economy that's coming. Yeah, And that human infrastructure is what keeps our communities and our, our families whole. Absolutely. So um, you are doing amazing work, and it's very complex work. If you've ever seen Chad navigate the number of experts on a Zoom line, it is really something quite amazing to see. <laughs> thank you very much, Chad, for being with us today. Lon, thank you for the invitation. I, I really enjoyed spending time with you. It's great to to speak with you again. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.